you've likely heard it. You've probably even sung it yourself. It's one of rock's most recognizable anthems. It's in the Grammy Hall of Fame. It's blared over loudspeakers in stadiums all across the globe. In a 2005 poll, it was crowned the entire world's favorite song. One team of scientific researchers even concluded it's the catchiest song of all time. You know what song it is? We Are the Champions by the British rock band Queen. Freddie Mercury, when he wrote the lyrics, was inviting audience participation. It worked. The lyrics are as familiar as they are triumphant, and everywhere it's played, people sing along. I've paid my dues, time after time. I've done my sentence, but committed no crime, and bad mistakes, I've made a few. I've had my share of sand kicked in my face, but I've come through, and I mean to go on and on and on and on, and then you know the rest. We are the champions, my friends, and we'll keep on fighting till the end. We are the champions. We are the champions. No time for losers, because we are the champions. I wonder, though, if you've ever thought how that song would change. What would have happened if Mercury wrote it differently, if he had written... He or they are the champions. I think the song somehow wouldn't have the same appeal. But it's we are the champions. That's how we sing it, even though we've never stepped on the field, even though we've never scored a goal, even though we've never hit a home run. We are the champions when our team wins. Because when they win, we win with them. I remember as a kid dancing down the aisles uh, here in South Florida at what was then Joe Robbie Stadium in the 1997 World Series as the Florida Marlins defeated the Cleveland Indians. Four games to three. People were going nuts. I was going nuts. The city of Miami would for hours after that be banging on pots and pans in the streets. Y'all know we're crazy down south, right? People were acting. As if they were just next in line to hold the trophy, as if they had done something themselves. That's because that's what champions do. That's how champions work. Their victories become ours. When they win, so do we. Champions fight for us. They represent us in spaces and places where we could never succeed. They're our warriors. That's why when they're defeated, it crushes us. But that's why when they come out on top, their conquests change us. We're no longer losers because when our champion wins, we win too. And today, as we come to one of the most famous stories in all of the Bible, in 1 Samuel 17, we're going to see a heavyweight showdown of epic proportions between two champions. In one corner, there's the Philistine champion, Goliath. A giant of a man who opposes God and his people. And in the other corner, there is the upstart Israelite challenger. A boy who's seemingly risen up out of nowhere. Who will risk his life in an attempt to save his people. So who will it be? Whose champion will reign supreme? 
Well, the drama alone is captivating, but more than that, I think the drama in 1 Samuel 17 is personal. Because, friends, the biggest battles you and I face are always going to be the battles we can't win. They're the ones we're powerless in this life to change unless someone stronger than us steps up. That's what 1 Samuel 17 is all about. So in a sentence, let me give it to you as the argument of the text and the sermon this morning. It's this, the Lord fights the battles his people have no hope of winning as he triumphs through his champion. The Lord fights the battles his people have no hope of winning as he triumphs through his champion. And we'll watch that unfold in three Stages. So look with me in your Bibles, beginning in verse 1 of chapter 17 of 1 Samuel. As we see, here's the first point, the impossible showdown. The impossible showdown. The showdown begins in the valley. So 1 Samuel 17, starting in verse 1. Now the Philistines gathered their armies for battle. And they were gathered at Succah, which belongs to Judah, and encamped between Succah and Azekah in Ephes Demin. And Saul and the men of Israel were gathered and encamped in the valley of Elah and drew up in line of battle against the Philistines. So you've already got the opponents. You've got God's people, the Israelites, and their antagonistic neighbors, the Philistines. You've got the battleground, the valley of Elah, around 12 miles west of Bethlehem. It's near Judahite territory in Israel, but it's also near Philistine territory. So if the Philistines win here, they'd gain unchallenged access to waltz right into Israel anytime they please. A Philistine victory would lead to a reign of terror in Israel, where raids would become routine and the Philistine presence would be permanent. So if you picture a valley, you've got peaks on opposing sides and you've got kind of a a place there in the middle down low that makes sense for a face-off. It's a natural place for a battle. So verse 3, And the Philistines stood on the mountain on one side, and Israel stood on the mountain on the other side with a valley between them. It's as if the two sides across opposing mountains are staring one another in the face, saying, who's going to blink first? And I think who blinks first is Israel. The Philistines have already been poking and prodding the Israelites throughout 1 Samuel. They're not just a constant annoyance. They are challenging to be the conquerors over Israel. So 1 Samuel 4, they captured the ark. 1 Samuel 7, they routed, threatened to, before God raised up a deliverer in Saul. They threatened him at Mizpah. They kept encroaching upon Israelite territory in 1 Samuel 12 and 13. They've got superior numbers of soldiers, superior weaponry, more horses. That makes the battle for the Valley of Elah kind of last stand for Israel. And that is all before you get to verse 4. Because it goes entirely south from verse 4 as if it wasn't already bad enough. Verse 4 shows us how hopeless Israel's situation really was. They're in a showdown they can't win. Look how the Philistines put forth a champion in verse 4. And there came out from the camp of the Philistines a champion named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits in a span, 
He had a helmet of bronze on his head, and he was armed with a coat of mail. And the weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze. And he had bronze armor on his legs and a javelin of bronze slung between his shoulders. The shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam. And his spear's head weighed 600 shekels of iron. And his shield-bearer went before him. In ancient Near Eastern traditions, champions were like champions today, except they were likely to get more bloody. Now, the word champion here, it literally means a man who steps out, who fights between two battle lines. And that's what Goliath's doing, and if you're facing Goliath, he's terrifying. He's towering at roughly nine feet, nine inches tall. He's so strong and menacing that he has no problem wearing bronze armor wearing, weighing 125 pounds. His spear's deadly. The tip alone weighs 15 pounds. He's even got someone standing in front of him to take the blows, a shield that he can get behind. The dude is intimidating. He is by, field the biggest guy, or by far the biggest guy on the field. He carries lethal weaponry. He's clothed with the best armor the ancient world has to offer, and he knows it. He's not just big, he's brash. Just watch him taunt the Israelites in verses 8, 9, and 10. He stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why have you come out to draw up for battle? Am I not a Philistine, and are you not servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves and let him come down to me. If he is able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. And the Philistine said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. The champion's issuing a challenge. He's He's demanding to go toe-to-toe with anybody brave enough to come out against him. Goliath's daring the Israelites to not wage a full-scale war, but instead to fight this thing, settle this deal, mano a mano. He even calls out Israel's king, Saul, who's sitting on the sidelines, scared. So what will Israel do? If you notice, verse 9 is Goliath's terms of engagement. If any Israelite can defeat him, if any Israelite bets bests him, all Israel wins. That's all you have to do. Except he's a giant, except he's going to kill you. The Philistines, if they lose, would submit in servitude to Israel. But if Goliath, their champion, wins, not only does Israel lose, not only does Israel's man lose, But it's not just the army, it's not just the soldier, it's the entire nation. They become slaves. That's why, verse 11, Israel and her king are shaking in their sandals. When Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistines, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. Now what you need to know here is that Saul, Israel's first king, should have been the one to step forward and fight. At the very least, he should have come forward to accept the challenge. But he's terrified. And listen, for all the flack Saul gets, can we just be honest that he's got a pretty good reason to be terrified? 
if all he can see is this giant of a man ready to lay waste to anybody who goes around in the ring, you'd be scared too. Friend, what scares you most? What are you afraid of? Like Saul, we all face situations that overwhelm us, circumstances that seem impossible. Suffering stalks us, casting a dark shadow over all our lives. And perhaps the biggest problem of all, the one none of us can solve, is death. There's an urban legend that says that Walt Disney had himself cryogenically frozen when he died in 1972. I bet you didn't see that at Disney. Supposedly, the story goes, is that he was going to get himself frozen when he died so that he could wait till technology caught up and they could unthaw him and he could be reanimated, return to the living. Um, the story's not true, but it almost was. Bob Nelson, then president of the California Cryogenics Society, said Walt Disney actually wanted to be frozen, but the truth is Walt missed out. He never specified it in writing, and when he died, the family didn't go for it. They had him cremated. I've personally seen his ashes, he says. But two weeks later, we froze the first man. If Disney had been the first, it would have made headlines around the world and been a real shot in the arm for cryonics. And yet, even though Disney didn't do it, lots of other people have. But to a man, every single person who's been frozen is $28,000 less rich and 320 degrees colder, and not a single person has gone back from being a popsicle to a living, breathing person. Friends, death is batting a thousand. It's inevitable. Death is the human condition. Since Adam, we have all lost in him. And it's not just capital D death, right? Like our everyday existence feels like little deaths all the time, as if it's a tiny thousand little cuts after cuts till we bleed out. So where can you turn when the battle can't be won at least by you? Friend, let me encourage you, turn to God. There's nothing you face today or tomorrow or ever that the omnipotent, almighty God cannot handle. Listen, fearful Saul and the frightened Israelites are a test case in what happens when we get our eyes off God and instead when we focus on our problems. Friends, what they saw before them was certain doom. It loomed large. It was a giant. But while they were looking down at their circumstances, what they should have been doing was looking up at the God who was sovereign over them. While their fears were founded because of what they could humanly see, their fears were ultimately foolish. Because they did not comprehend the reality that nothing is impossible for God. Saul forgot it. The people forgot it. What would they do? 
Israel needed a champion. They needed someone to deliver them. They needed somebody to step in and remind them of who God was and in light of that, who they were. And you'd think that they would be forced then to select a champion from the soldiers on the front lines. But instead, the narrative shifts from the battlefield to a sheepfold where a shepherd boy sits and tends his father's flocks. And it's there that we see point number two, their desperate need. Their desperate need. It kind of feels strange to hit pause on this battle to go to a rural scene of a shepherd and his sheep, but it is not strange at all if you've been reading 1 Samuel. Because a chapter earlier in 1 Samuel 16, a shepherd boy from Bethlehem was anointed as the king to be. Upon being chosen by Samuel, he immediately received the Holy Spirit uniquely empowering him to fight the battles that God's people could not fight for themselves. His name is David. Look with me, beginning in chapter 17, verse 12. Now David was the son of an Ephrathite of Bethlehem in Judah named Jesse, who had eight sons. In the days of Saul, the man was already old and advanced in years. The three oldest sons of Jesse had followed Saul to the battle. And the names of the three sons who went to the battle were Eliab, the firstborn, and next to him Abinadab, and the third Shammah. David was the youngest. The three eldest followed Saul, but David went back and forth from Saul to feed his father's sheep at Bethlehem. For 40 days, the Philistine came forward and took his stand, morning and evening. So in 1 Samuel 16, God selects David, the youngest, and run to the litter to rule in place of tall Saul, who had failed him, because God is never swayed by appearances. God always looks at the heart. David's three eldest brothers had joined Saul in battle, so that means that while David is back from the front lines, those he loves are in danger. For 40 days straight, the Israelites are just demoralized imagine that for 40 days you see news reports that every single day your side is losing and there's no hope in sight it's humiliating until suddenly in god's sovereignty there is a reason for david to head to the front lines verses 17 and 18 and Jesse said to David, his son, Take for your brothers an ephah of this parched grain, and then ten loaves, and carry them quickly to the camp to your brothers. Also take these ten cheeses to the commander of their thousands. See if your brothers are well, and bring some token from them. David's father wants words of affirmation that either his sons have been slaughtered or that they're safe. And so he sends David, not on a military mission, but one of humanitarian aid. Go check they are, how they are. Go encourage them. Go bring something from home. And now, finally, the man who should be leading Israel shows up to the battle. He gets right to it as the day begins. His brothers are alive, but that's not all. So close to the front line, something happens beginning in verse 19. And what happens is that when David shows up, David hears. Look, starting there in verse 19. Now Saul and they and all the men of Israel were in the valley of Elah fighting with the Philistines. 
And David rose early in the morning and left the sheep with a keeper and took provisions and went as Jesse had commanded him. And he came to the encampment as the host was going out to the battle line, shouting the war cry. And Israel and the Philistines drew up for battle, army against army. And David left the things in charge of the keeper of the baggage and ran to the ranks and went and greeted his brothers. As he talked with him, behold, the champion, the Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name, came up out of the ranks of the Philistines and spoke the same words as before. But something's different, and here's what's different. And David heard him. The whole narrative pivots at the point that David gets within earshot of the Philistine champion. He hears his taunts, his threats, how they've gone unanswered since the war began. So having heard, the question is, what will David do? If you're somebody who's a child of the 80s, maybe, or you just happen to like time travel movies, you've probably seen Back to the Future. And in Back to the Future, Michael J. Fox's character, Marty McFly, has one thing that you cannot call him. Anybody know what it is? Chicken. Don't call him chicken. Will David chicken out? His countrymen do. Verse 24. All the men of Israel, when they saw the man, fled from him and were much afraid. Listen, bravery and bravado sounds great till death knocks at the door, doesn't it? After 40 days of this, all Israel can do is flee in fear. But as they scamper away, they say something interesting. A reward's on the line for whoever bests the beast. Riches, a wife, a tax-free life for extended family. Verse 25, have you seen this man who has come up? Surely he has come up to defy Israel. And the king will enrich the man who kills him with great riches and will give him his daughter and make his father's house free in Israel. Now David's heard the taunts, and David's heard the reward. He asks to make sure what he's heard is true, and then he speaks, and this is his first statement in all of recorded scripture, and it is the first right theological statement in the entire chapter. Verses 26 and 27. And David said to the men who stood by him, What shall be done for the man who kills the Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? And the people answered him in the same way, so shall it be done to the man who kills him. See, for David, this is not just a physical fight. This is a spiritual battle. You can hear echoes of David's statement here and Paul's statement to New Testament Christians in Ephesians 6. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. David determines where everybody else has missed that there is a divine dimension. Goliath is not simply defying Saul or Saul's armies or Israel's armies. He is defying the living God. And it's apparent that the promise of the reward is not primarily what draws David into the fight. It's the prospect of God being rightly seen, honored, glorified. David is righteously angry, and he's confident. He remembers how the one true God, Yahweh, who humiliated Goliath's fake God, Dagon. When the Philistines had captured the ark, the Lord had gone behind enemy lines. And he had cut off 
the hands and the head of the statue that they claimed was their God? Who was going to do sim something similar to this champion who was denigrating God's glory? Now, in a bit of sibling rivalry in verses 28, 29, and 30, there's a little bit of a fight between David and his brother. Uh, so, kids, maybe your brothers and your sisters sometimes argue over something. Maybe you're mad because they get what you don't get. Maybe David's brother is frustrated that he didn't get called king and David did. Eliab questions David's motives there, but David's motives are pure. He's not in it for the fame of his own name, but for the glory of God. Israel desperately needs a champion, someone who will fight this battle for them. A battle against a giant of a man, a battle that they can't win. And David, the shepherd boy, is all they've got. And in verses 31 to 37, David gives an acceptance speech of this position of champion that drips with trust in God. Verse 31, when the words that David spoke were heard, they repeated them before Saul, and he sent for him. And David said to Saul, let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight with the Philistines. And Saul said to David, you're not able to go against the Philistine to fight with him, for you are but a youth, and he has been a man of war from his youth. But David said to Saul, your servant used to keep sheep for his father. And when they came a lion or a bear and took a lamb from the flock, I went after him and struck him and delivered out of his mouth. And if he arose against me, I caught him by his beard and struck him and killed him. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them. For he has defied the armies of the living God. And David said, the Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of the Philistine. And Saul said to David, go, and the Lord be with you. I mean, David's got it hard, right? His own brother questions his motivations. His own king tells him, you're going to lose. When Goliath sees David later, he's going to laugh. Everyone perceives weakness in David. But David is not deterred. He volunteers to stand in the gap as champion. And there he's given two pieces of experience that he says qualify him. There was his preparation, verses 34, 35, and 36. When he was a shepherd and an apex predator came in and took an animal, what did he do? He killed him with his bare hands. But it's not just his preparation. It's what the preparation did to help grow his trust in God. It's God's past deliverance, verse 37. If God had proven that he could deliver David then, David believes he can deliver me now. David speaks the language of faith. He's completely confident that God will defend his own honor by putting this God-belittling Philistine to shame. It's worth us asking ourselves, why do we serve God is it for the fame of his name is it because of our confidence in him or is it riches rewards the applause of others out of a fear of what would happen if not 
Friends, in that, David is a great example because David knows God, he trusts in God. And because he trusts in God, he goes and he acts on behalf of God. So listen, before David is ever an example for us to imitate, he is a preview of a greater David we're meant to marvel at. Listen, there is one popular way to interpret this story. Maybe you've heard it. That way is problematic. In it, David and Goliath is all about how you, if you just have enough self-determination, grit, and pull yourself up by your bootstrapsness, that you, too, like David, can defeat the giants in your life. You can slay your relational problems. You can swing for the fences and defeat financial relational, vocational, decisional giants, no problem. Just be brave, you got this. The only thing is, that kind of misses the entire point of the story. I am sympathetic to that reading. We all have problems. But listen, David's not just like us. David is the king to be. When we read our Bibles and insert ourselves as the hero of the story— what that does is it moves God off the center and it places us where only God should be. Now everything we read is about ourselves, but the Bible is not ultimately about us, it's about God. His plans, his purposes, for his glory. Before we're ever David, we need to recognize that we're much more like Israel, cowering in a corner, fearful and afraid, scared to death because death is knocking at our door. We can't avoid dying. We can't erase our wrongs. We will not escape God's judgment on our own. We disobey. We disbelieve. We drift. And when this life is over and we stand before our maker, if someone does not stand up for us, we will not be able to stand ourselves. So listen, David's not playing the hero you need to be. He's pointing to the hero you and I need. David, as he depends upon the Lord, is attempting to win salvation for his people through his victory. We need a champion like that. Which is why, finally, as we come to the battle between two champions, we see, and this is our third and final point, that this champions come in our place. In our place. In verses 38 and 39, Saul attempts to be helpful, kind of. If David is marching towards his death like he believes, the least he can do is give him his armor and sword and I guess go collect it afterwards. David steps into Saul's shoes, so to speak. And there's a hint there of Saul being replaced. But listen, David is not dumb. Like any good soldier, he's not going to go into battle with untested weaponry. So starting in verse 38. And then Saul clothed David with his armor. He put a helmet of bronze on his head and clothed him, with, clothed him with a coat of mail. And David strapped his sword over his armor, and he tried in vain to go, for he had not tested them. Then David said to Saul, I cannot go with these, for I have not tested them. So David put them on. Consider for a second what David's doing. By rejecting Saul's equipment, he is leaving himself exposed. So what's he go with? He decides he'll go with what he knows. Verse 40. Took his staff in his hand and chose five smooth stones from the brook. 
and put them in his shepherd's pouch. His sling went in his hand, and he approached the Philistines. If you look at the literature, slings were used as far back as the second millennium BC. So a, a stone a few inches across could get hurled up to a hundred plus miles an hour. So it's not nothing, but it's still a sling against a guy who's nine feet, nine inches, right? Like that's kind of like, I'm going to take my stick and my pouch and my stones and my sling. It's like a pocket knife at a gunfight. Like what's David doing? I love that like every epic battle on every playground court, there is an equally epic amount of trash talk here. The battle between these champions does not disappoint. So Goliath's the first one to go, and he is not silent at all. Verse 41. And the Philistine moved forward and came near to David with his shield bearer in front of him. And when the Philistines looked and saw David, he disdained him, for he was but a youth, ruddy and handsome in appearance. And the Philistine said to David, Am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. The Philistine said to David, Come to me, and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and to the beasts of the field. You can tell Goliath's real worried, right? He's seen the stick. He hasn't seen the sling. And he threatens David with something almost worse than death. Dishonor. I'm going to kill you, and I'm going to feed you to wild animals. And you got to love that David gives it right back. But unlike Goliath, it's not empty boast because he boasts in the Lord. It's faith-filled courage. So look at verse 45. Then David said to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head. And I will give the dead bodies of the hosts of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel, and that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves not with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hand. David is basically saying, listen, giant, here's the deal. You are not going to die today because you're fighting me. You are going to die today because you're fighting God. It's the God of the universe. We sang he's undefeated. He's never lost. When I kill you, David says, I am going to cut off your head. And I am going to leave your corpse for the creator to have his creation pick at your bones. So that the whole earth knows that there is one true God in Israel. And so everyone who's here, David is saying, can see that the Lord saves not by visible strength, but by God-glorifying weakness. Now, back up in verse 5 at the start of the chapter, there was a little textual detail that I think even amplifies this fight. The text said Goliath is covered in a coat of mail. Chain mail armor is that kind of metal armor that's linked by little iron circles. But that word mail, it literally means scales. Goliath is the slithering seed of the serpent. He is the fiery dragon come to destroy. 
Friends, this battle is part of the battle that had been raging since the garden, all straining forward in anticipation to the fulfillment of that promise in Genesis 3.15 that one day the serpent slayer was going to come to crush the head of that vile villain, the snake. That's where God had said, I will put enmity between you and the woman, the serpent, and between your offspring and her offspring. He, the serpent slayer, shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And the seed of the woman, the serpent slayer, David, had come to deliver a kill shot to slimy Goliath's head. The battle unfolds in a flash with all this buildup in verse 48. When the Philistine arose and came and drew near to meet David, David ran quickly towards the battle line to meet the Philistine. And David put his hand in his bag. He reaches quickly down in his shepherd's pouch and took out a stone and slung it and struck the Philistine on the forehead. The stone sank into his forehead. It's a death blow, a kill shot, and he fell on his face to the ground. So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and with a stone and struck the Philistine and killed him. There's no sword in the hand of David. Then David ran and stood over the Philistine and took his sword and drew it out of its sheath and killed him and cut off his head with it. Serpent slayed, decapitated. And when the Philistines saw their champion was dead, they fled. That day, Israel's champion, the people's champion, David, the true king, prevailed over Goliath, not by might, but by weakness through trust, depending upon the Lord. As Israel's champion wins, so too do the people. They rise up to go get the fleeing Philistines in verse 52. And the men of Israel and Judah rose with a shout and pursued the Philistines as far as Gath and the gates of Ekron. So that the wounded Philistines fell on the way from Sherem as far as Gath and Ekron. Like the, the Israelite army was like cowering in the corner. They do nothing and David wins and they're like, let's go. And it just gets better. Verse 53, they make off with the Philistine treasure, not because they did anything, but because David won. And the people of Israel came back from chasing the Philistines. They, they plundered their camp. And David took the head of the Philistine and brought it into Jerusalem, but he put his armor in the tent. The passage ends with this ongoing tension that kind of sets up the rest of 1 Samuel, as Saul, the rejected king, who also, by the way, was wearing a coat of mail, snakeskin armor. Saul's going to live forever in the shepherd boy's shadow. And that's how David, the spirit-anointed warrior king, brings salvation to God's people. That's what the Lord does through his champion. He fights and wins the battles his people can't win on their own. Does that sound like anybody to you? Friends, that's exactly what God does through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Friends, Jesus is our champion. Jesus is our victorious king. Jesus wins, and his wins become ours now as we're united to him by faith. Listen, David fought for God's glory. So too did Jesus. For 40 days, Christ was tempted and taunted in the wilderness. And while Israel and all of us failed, Jesus conquered. David fights on behalf of a nation. Jesus comes to win on behalf of the nations who will serve him. When David appeared outmatched, he wins through weakness, leaning on the Lord. Friends, that's Jesus' playbook entirely. 
Jesus looked defeated and weak when he died. But friends, he was defeating death from the inside out. He was crushing the head of the last serpent, Satan. He was winning for us. All David needed was a shepherd's staff, some stones, and a sling. Friends, all Christ our King needed was some nails and some wood. That's how he saves. Goliath was a formidable foe, but listen, Jesus has faced down greater giants and gone toe-to-toe with sin, Satan, and death, and everything that threatens to separate us forever from God. That's why the New Testament describes Jesus' death and resurrection as a victory. Colossians 2, and you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them. That's the idea behind Hebrews 2, that Jesus partook of humanity, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death. Friends, at the cross, Jesus Christ crushed the head of the serpent and won salvation for us. That is why the Apostle John can say, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. That's why the New Living Translation can render Hebrews 12-2 like this, keeping our eyes on Jesus, the champion who initiates and perfects our faith. Friends, outside of Christ, we have no hope of being forgiven. We have no hope of eternal life. We have no hope of knowing God. But in Christ, all that Jesus is and all that Jesus wins becomes ours too. As Martin Luther would say, Christ conquers all the believer's enemies. We've been snatched out of damnation and brought to eternal life through Christ's victory over hell, death, and Satan's power. So with that said, I want to give you three brief things this means for us. One, your hope always transcends your circumstances. Your hope always transcends your circumstances. If it's Christ's victory over your enemies that wins for you the hope of eternal life, then friends, stop looking at your circumstances. Look at your conquering king. Your hope is sure. Two, your sin has already been defeated at the cross, so put sin to death. Your sin has already been defeated at the cross, so put sin to death. Jesus Christ died to slay our sins. And he died in our place, and when God raised him from the dead, he accepted his sacrifice. Friends, do you understand that because at the cross, Christ has forgiven us our sins, that now what you and I do in the Christian life is kind of like the Israelites after David wins. They're emboldened, they're courageous, because they're running behind a winner, and that's when they take out the swords, and that's when they mop up the already defeated enemies. Friends, pursue holiness, because Christ has already won it for you. And then third, and I love that this has already happened here. You've been saved, so sing loudly. You have been saved, so sing 
loudly. Friends, all throughout the Bible, when God saves for himself a people, especially through apparent weakness, like they're against a wall of water, like a little shepherd boy's got a sling, like the one who says he's the king of the universe dies and then rises and walks out of the grave, what do God's people do? They sing and they sing loudly. They sing of the lamb who was slain. They sing of his victory, not theirs. They sing, if I can say, we are the champions because they know they're not, but they know that Christ is. That is their song. So friends, imagine that this was your life. You are watching the game. And it is the most crucial moment. And somehow, wonderfully, you're called out of the stands onto the field. But listen, you're a weekend warrior at best. Do you really want to be the person who takes the shot, who has the at-bat, who makes the pitch, who shoots the ball when the game's on the line? Or do you want to phone a friend? Do you want to call MJ to push off and sink it? You want to ask LeBron to go to the hole? You want to give the ball to Steph and have him shoot a three? Do you want Tiger, good Tiger, to line up the putt? Friends, here is our faith. It is going to Jesus and placing the ball in his hands and saying, you win this for me. In Christ, we are more than conquerors. We are champions through him who loved us. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we praise you because you are good. And you have done eternal good to us in Jesus Christ. Lord, would you help us to see that the situations in our lives in Christ are not so much for us to strengthen our resolve and defeat, but instead are opportunities for us to admit weakness and to depend upon your Son by faith. Help us to see that through his victory in his holy life, his sacrificial death, and his triumphant resurrection from the dead, that now he has won for us everything we need. 